welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Father Morgan Reed, uh, the vicar here at Corpus Christi. And I'm uh, so grateful to be worshiping with you on this Passion Sunday. Again, you know, if we're thinking about last year, uh, at this point we weren't meeting every week. Uh, so we actually didn't have a chance to shroud the crosses. Plus, we were setting up at Green Spring Gardens, if you can remember that far back. So a lot's changed, um, and God is growing this community, and it's a joy to celebrate this part of Lent where the crosses are veiled. We, we take our focus slightly off of what happened on the cross so that we can uh, maintain a focus on the road to the cross, which uh, the road which led to the cross. And that's why this Friday we're going to celebrate the stations of the cross liturgy. You see these stations painted in the abstract around the sanctuary, and we're going to have a liturgy for that on Friday, which I'll mention uh, during the announcements. Uh, But this begins this season, and the the crosses will be shrouded through Palm Sunday as we walk with Jesus on the way to the cross. There is, in our passages this morning, there is a redemptive kind of loss in each of the passages. Whether we're talking about exile or giving things up for the sake of Christ. And so I wanted to look at a slow kind of intentional discipleship that is based on in redemptive loss, specifically in St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians here in chapter 3. Um, so I want to pray for us as we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, something about me that some of you may know already is that I grew up in California, and um, there are a lot of you here from the West Coast. I like to think that we're like this uh, refuge for exiles from the west side of the country. Um, And we lived about 30 minutes away from the coast uh, inland, and so we would go to the beach all the time. Like That was the place we went for day trips. We would go there uh, for youth group events at church. And actually, that's where I proposed to Ashley. It was at one of those beaches that we use for youth events. And um, it is this beautiful coastline. I'm from the north north part of California. And I remember as a teenager, one of the things that I like to try and do is, as I was down on the beach, I would try and climb up the sea cliffs to see how high I could go. And there was a problem with doing that. It was really challenging because the sea cliffs, whatever rock they were made out of, just tended to crumble under my hands. It would just break. It was so brittle. Uh, every time waves hit this thing, part of the cliff went with it. And I remember driving along Highway 1, which is the, the coastal highway there, and seeing this house um, at, at a certain point that was halfway over the cliff already. And there was a huge metal beam that was trying to brace this house. But, you know, it's only delaying the inevitable. It had long been abandoned. Nobody lived in that house anymore. It was too dangerous. It was only a matter of months, maybe years if you were lucky, before that house was going to be claimed again by the ocean. 
And the erosion of sea cliffs is actually kind of a big problem in California for people, uh, homeowners, who want to build a house on a sea cliff and have a seafront property. Um, because every major storm that happens is this reminder that your house is going to eventually be claimed by the sea. And so we're taught to, to think that, you know, when we invest in a house, we're investing in something that's going to appreciate in value. So we do these renovation projects. We redo rooms. We fix things. And, and we expect that those, those uh, fix-ups are going to pay dividends and, and, you know, help us gain money on the sale of the home. It's a long-term investment. But every dollar that you throw into a house that you're building on the edge of a sea cliff is going to eventually be a complete loss. Maybe in the short term, if you can fix it up quickly and resell it, you might make some money. But in the long run, it's a bad investment. And so in Philippians 3, St. Paul recounts for us the things that he used to invest in that were on the gain side that he has now flipped over into the loss category because of the work of Christ. This world, I think, is in the business of building mansions on sea cliffs. Um, there are narratives that we are fed and told about wealth, sex, power, and ambition that push us away from knowing Jesus as the Lord of this world and, and, and the Lord of the universe. And, and God uses loss sometimes to redeem us from false narratives that we've been told um, and incomplete narratives that we've been given by turning us to Jesus and pointing us to the work that he's done in his cross and, and in the power of his resurrection that makes us new each and every day. So St. Paul is writing from prison here, which itself is a kind of redemptive loss. He's less than comfortable. And from prison, he's addressing some concerns that have arisen for these believers that he's been discipling in Jesus. Um, there are people who are teaching the Philippians, and from what we can gather, the teachers that he's talking to they thought that certain marks of the law or the Torah uh, in Judaism, like circumcision or Sabbath keeping, purity laws around food and, and just other purity things, were necessary for following Jesus. They made you more right with God than not doing them. And so St. Paul is very concerned about this. And so he tells the Philippians, uh, he wants to let them know that in Christ, they're under a new covenant with God. It's this covenant that accomplished what the covenant of Moses could not accomplish, which is peace with God. So he begins the chapter with a huge list of his credentials. It's before the passage we read this morning. If these teachers thought that they had it all together to be a higher class of Christian, then St. Paul was even more so because he was of the right lineage. He was circumcised according to the law. He was an adherent to one of the strictest forms of Judaism, and he was zealous in faithful deeds. I mean, the man showed his faith. And no one could find fault with the ways that he was keeping the law. But what he had invested in was going to eventually turn out to be absolutely nothing when Christ was revealed to him. Right? It was like building a mansion on a sea cliff. And he came to realize that everything that he had just built uh, was not only not going to maintain its value, but would actually result in loss. And he got as far as he could in something that wasn't ultimately going to do it. Uh, he got as far as he could in something that could not ultimately provide life with God, having experienced Jesus now. 
Having experienced Jesus, he has undergone a redemption and, and a redemptive loss. He's able to rightly see the things that he used to view as investments in his spiritual life as loss. He grieves them as loss. He makes peace with that loss. And, and that allows him to now make his new aim to know Christ as Lord, which is a progressive kind of knowing. It's not like a secret. All of a sudden I get it. I understand what it means for Christ to be Lord. It's an experience. It's theology lived. And I find comfort in that. There's a new beginning for God's covenant people in Christ. There, each of us are given the same starting place. So no matter how you're coming into the body of the church, you're given the same life with Christ, the same starting place. No matter how broken you might feel, no matter how unworthy you might feel, you have the same starting place as somebody who seems put together. And St. Paul teaches us what things are considered to be gain and loss in God's divine economy. And how those things relate to Jesus as Lord. So one of the ways to look at a life of following Jesus, I think, in this passage, is that we are on a long journey together, a lifelong journey of discerning what spiritual loss is from spiritual gain in God's economy. If we allow Jesus to become the Lord over more and more of our lives and our hearts, then we're going to grow in discerning what's actually gain and what's actually loss. And the sooner becomes the grips with how not put together we are, the more ready we are for an encounter with the grace of Jesus. So, Paul considers his resume to be worthless, as we saw in the, which was the passage before the one we read. He counts it worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. There was one early church writer that compared it to a candle. If you have a candle, it is very valuable when it's dark. But once the sun is out, if you hold that candle up to the sun, it's completely useless. The light from the sun just envelops it, and it doesn't do any good anymore. It seems like the things that St. Paul had clung to in the past were his family heritage, his ritual behaviors, and the cultural narratives that he grew up with to feel like he was okay with God. And with others. He doesn't want others now to fall into the trap, uh, to that same trap. And so he's saying that those things are not going to be the things that make us okay with God. Those aren't the starting point of our life with the God who loves us. So what he's pushing against are those who want to use defunct standards, standards that are, are, are incorrect as a way of creating classes among those who are following Jesus. What he's saying is that if we want to you know, play the spiritual class card, he has a lot more to offer than those other teachers do. And what he's learned is that the level of spirituality that he inherited and that he achieved didn't actually make him okay with God. It didn't give him the life of God that his heart wanted. So I want to ask us a question this morning. It's a question I've been pondering. What does it mean to grow in a loving relationship with God? What does it look like? What does it mean to grow in a loving relationship with God? If I were to go um, out to the Springfield Plaza and I were to do a person on the street interview and just ask a bunch of people what they thought, kind of like in those alpha videos, 
I would imagine I would get all sorts of answers, right? Like doing good, um, praying, being kind to people, loving people. Those are all good things. They're not incorrect, um, but they actually don't require much of God to do them. They're inadequate uh, and they're inadequate even for those of us. If we think of those of us who, you know, we might consider ourselves to be a little more illumined than the average person on the street. Um, I would even challenge this. Like our tendency is to create a checklist that makes us know that we are okay with God. You know, maybe we think about attending Christian gatherings or how many prayers we're praying or how much money we might be giving uh, to charity, how few times we get angry to those that we love, you know. None of those are necessarily bad things, but as we think about those, um, the kingdom of God is, at, at the same time, simpler than that and more challenging than that. A checklist is really nice. A check, we love checklists. Right? We put them on our fridge. We did this. We did this. The day is good or bad, depending on the checklist. And checklists are nice because we love self-improvement, and it's something that we can actually control. And so they have their place. But um, there's, there's a way to do those things in which we don't necessarily need God's help. And so each of the things that I just mentioned are good. And there, there are actually good habits to, to cultivate that the church has given us to set ourselves up to experience the grace of God. But those things need to flow out of a life that is already in growing, this growing and loving union with the God who loves us. A relationship, a living relationship with the creator of the universe. And instead, you know, growing in loving relationship to God means that instead of a checklist of good things, we are learning uh, progressively day by day to open ourselves up more and more and more uh, in our lives to the loving grace of God, to his gaze of love through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we can do Then when we do that, we can rightly look at our circumstances. We can learn to rightly look at our relationships and our calendars. And we can begin to discern what things here are of value in the kingdom of God, what things are considered to be lost in God's divine economy. And we can avoid what's lost. When we're brought into places and we feel like we are undone, and we just feel like we're out of control, then we're set up well to experience the grace of God. Because at those moments, we're ready to increase our knowledge of Jesus as Lord and not ourselves as Lord. St. Paul would tell us that before Christ, he was a devoted person and he was very sincere. But he was, a devoted, he was devoted to the wrong things and he was sincerely wrong. And so his whole heart was invested in a system of religion that had been feeding this incomplete narrative about who God had created him to be. And who God had made others to be. And, and Jesus didn't want to just make better followers of the Mosaic law. That's not why Jesus came. Instead, he wants to expand Judaism um, through a new covenant to all peoples by his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. So, um, when St. Paul had been excelling in the religion of Judaism... He had a certain fear of his enemies, and it's really interesting. His enemies, you know, when we think of Christians, uh, his fear caused them, caused him to put them to death and to pursue them to death. 
And, and I want to note how Jesus has changed the ways that St. Paul now talks about his enemies. He used to create narratives about them, that they were like a disease that needed to be cut out of the covenant community. And now, as a Christian, his enemies uh, are different. Uh, and, and the ways that he pursues them is, isn't by cutting them out. It's by presenting a better view of Jesus. Uh, rather than defensiveness and violence, he holds out the gospel to them. He holds out the goodness of Jesus. Not just right, but it's good. He holds out the goodness of Jesus to show them the ways that the things they're espousing and the things that they're promoting are not ultimately going to promote the goodness of life in Christ and human flourishing. To use his words that he says elsewhere, our war is not against flesh and blood, but it's against authorities, rulers, and powers over this present darkness. So there are voices in this age uh, that tell us that we're going to be okay with God by holding up incorrect standards of success that stem from systems that can't bring us to God. And I was reminded about something this week. I had gone to an um, alumni breakfast yesterday from my alma mater, and I really loved my alma mater, but I remember uh, one of the experiences that was a little funny when I was in undergrad. They used to require us to do a weekly practical Christian ministry, and I loved that they made us do that. Um, but they had a checklist after we were all done, and that checklist you know, had some normal questions you would ask, like, did you go? How many people were there? And then some of the questions got into stuff like, you know, how many conversions were there? How many decisions for Christ? How many recommitments to the Lord? And that's all fine. But those things are really hard to quantify. Um, I don't know how one measures those things. And and so, you know, it's helpful to have numbers, especially when you're raising support for a nonprofit. So I can't blame them. But there is a danger to taking a checklist like that and then internalizing it as the means of spiritual growth. And we are a culture that is saturated with a, a God-defying kind of pride. And so a checklist has the potential of masking God with God. It's masking our need for God's grace. Eugene Peterson says it this way. It's difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it's held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable, and rewarded as an achievement. I'll say it again. It's difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable, and rewarded as an achievement. So a better way is to immerse ourselves in getting to know the power that is in the resurrection of Jesus. That slow growth of knowing Jesus as Lord, slowly revealing more and more of yourself to him as Lord. So it's both simpler and it's more difficult than a checklist. But we find Jesus here in the scriptures. We find Jesus in the scriptures as we um, create for ourselves a biblical memory of God's saving deeds of the past. And then we come to know Jesus in a life of unending prayer, of prayer without ceasing, to use St. Paul's words. One of the things that I'm excited about that um, Jody, our operations manager, and I have been working on, we've been working on some welcome bags uh, for those who come, because we seem to have more and more visitors, which is encouraging. And, and she made these beautiful booklets. 
They're not done yet. They'll be done by Easter. Um, but they've taken family prayer out of our Book of Common Prayer, and they've and she put them into a little booklet for newcomers to use. And why do we push that aspect of our vision? Our vision is common people and common prayer for uncommon transformation. Why is common prayer so important to the vision of this church? It's because you and I constantly need to reframe our lives in light of God's grace and the power of Jesus' resurrection. And it doesn't happen without intentionality. So we think daily prayer, which itself is filled with the scriptures, teaches us to how to use the scriptures to come to know God. Um, and it, it is a reminder, it's a way of marking our days with God's grace, to reframe our lives that way, to grow in Him. And so, yeah, sometimes it feels more nebulous, like, man, I would really love a checklist. Um, but that's precisely because in, in the daily prayers that we pray and framing our lives in light of God's grace, we're not in control anymore. And, and we let Jesus become Lord as we recognize more and more parts of our lives that need to be given to him, which can't be done in a checklist. Each day, then, is an opportunity to walk with Jesus and to come to know his lordship better and to open ourselves up to him in honesty with the way that things aren't right now as we think they should be and to experience the power of his resurrection in those places. But it does involve being honest with him about the places where we feel undone, like things right now are not the way I thought they would be, that I expected them to be. We are invited then into the goodness of redemptive loss for the sake of seeing how God restores and how God rebuilds. And it's a, it's a vision of the good life, actually, a, competing, a competing narrative of the good life that is available to all people. And I think it's equally as good as it is confrontational. Because what it demands of us is not that we just improve ourselves, but that we actually die to ourselves. It's a journey of learning to discern what things are gain and loss in God's divine economy. And as we enter into the way of the cross together this week and in Holy Week, I want to encourage us to keep that phrase in our minds as the theme of discipleship, the theme of redemptive loss. And redemptive loss then shows us the long journey to discerning what is gain and what is loss under Jesus' lordship and his work of new creation. Let us pray. O oh God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, help us so to know you that we may truly love you. And so love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.